I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word this morning. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 27, beginning at verse 20, down through chapter 30, verse 10. I'm going to take an aerial view and actually land in one particular uh, spot. But I'm not going to begin that time in my scripture reading. I'm actually going to begin my scripture reading in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Now, I read these words, this this picture in the revelation here of the glory and wonder of Christ, the holiness of Christ. And you will hear in the language that's used here in this description, many terms that will also be used as we consider the work and ministry of the high priest in Exodus chapter 28 this morning. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be gathered here this morning. We thank You that we can come together and we can pray together, sing together, but Lord, we have come to hear from You. We thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we pray that You would teach us some for the first time to see that their only hope is found in Jesus the Christ. And Lord, all of us to see that the wonder and glory and majesty and grace and beauty of Christ is always greater than we have seen. And we want to see it more. Help us to do so this very day. We pray it in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. We must consistently repent of the sin of thinking that we can decide what the big moments in our life really are. It's a a sin to think that we can decide what the big moments are. It got people into a problem in the very beginning. Well, it's not that big a deal that I eat from that tree, and it has been doing so ever since. In the normal course of our lives, we tend to think, well, this is not all that important. This is just routine. This is ordinary. But man, we're getting to some big moments. And then 
Those will be significant. They will really matter. When in reality, we have no ability to judge such things. We are not called to live sort of waiting for the big moments of life. But we are to live with faithfulness in every moment of life. And in fact, it's often the fact that we don't that we find ourselves in a way of major sin. You know, when you think about something like a, somebody committing the sin of adultery, one important reality that you have to understand is that's not where they started. They didn't start at the act of adultery. There are all kinds of little things and little moments that didn't seem all that important that were forsaken. We do this in all kinds of ways. One of the ways we, we sort of decide what's really important is with our Bibles. There are parts of our Bibles that just don't seem as important or significant as others. Now, understand this. There's nothing wrong with having favorite portions of the Bible. There are some particular verses that encapsulate truth in such a way that you personally cherish those in a way because they're transformative and banners over your life. That's perfectly fine. But here's what we have to understand. That the reason those things have so much meaning is because they are fit in the storyline of the Bible. And the more we understand the storyline of the Bible, the more meaning those particular spots that encapsulate truth will be to us. In fact, we may love that verse more because we spend our time thinking about portions of the Bible that at first glance we would say, well, that's not all that important. If I were to say, you know, what do you think about a detailed explanation of the wardrobe of an ancient ecclesiastical figure even down to his underwear? You would say, man, that sounds really important. Probably not. And yet, here we are. One of the principles that we have as we study the Scripture is when the narrative slows up and spends a lot of time somewhere, we are to take note. You have this overview of Jesus' life, and then you have the week that He is going to be crucified and raised, and everything slows up. Exodus, we have this big unfolding of events, and then all of a sudden we get to the tabernacle and everything slows up. You see, only God is the one who is capable of deciding what the big moments are. And He often does that in surprising ways, in surprising places. The Bible teaches us that we must come to God on His terms. We come by grace through, grace through faith, but it's always on His terms. The story has unfolded in Exodus. And one man and a burning bush and the voice of God speaking to bringing that people who was in bondage. Now it's not just a man, it's a nation to Mount Sinai. And God speaking from the top of the mountain all the way to a people in whom God has now taken up residence. He has placed His home. 
the tabernacle, the, the temple, the tent. No matter where this people goes, now they are to understand that God Himself has taken up residence among them. That's where the narrative slows down. And by the way, just think about the climax of the Bible. The book of Revelation that we just referenced. What's the issue? God dwelling with His people forever. That's where we're headed. That's the high point. It's not the anticlimax. So this temple reality here, we're supposed to say, I want to know everything about it. Because God says this is important. We've seen God's relentless commitment to be present among His people. And two things are flashing light throughout this whole study, and that is God is holy, and yet God determines that He will be with us. He will be present among His people. And when we think about the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, the the Ark itself, the, the box represents God as holy. But on that box is the atonement cover or the the mercy seat where the blood will be splattered, where atonement for the sins of the people will be made. And we so even over the box that reminds us of the holiness of God is the place of mercy and how God is determined to have relations with the people. Uh, J.A. Mott, you're an Old Testament commentator, puts it this way. It was not, therefore, the sacred box of the ark as such that was central to the tabernacle, nor even the law which it housed. But what was central was the triumph of mercy over wrath, of forgiveness over offense, of admission over exclusion, of the unmerited working of grace over the well-deserved judgment. One of the things I've been at pains to remind you, because it's so easy to miss at first glance, is that this whole sequence of events is because God wants to draw near to His people and call them to draw near to Him. This is not about exclusion. This is about God calling us to Him. You see, the very existence of the tabernacle is God's commitment to dwell among His people. And the very reality that they're commanded to offer sacrifices means that that, that there's a necessary figure that must emerge to lead in that. Moses was a mediator uh, uh, for the people in the presence of God. He was a prophetic mediator. He mediated the revelation of God. And there's carryover in these roles, but now that God is dwelling permanently among His people, there needs to be a priestly mediator. One who will go before God on behalf of the people, and He will lead in worship. He will offer sacrifices. He will uh, be involved in consecration, and He will lead in worship. Uh, Go between, between God and man. We have Moses, the prophetic mediator. And now we're going to have Aaron the priestly mediator. Now there are other priests, but there is but one high priest. The section starts out in chapter 27, uh, verses 10 through 12, I mean 20, 20 through 21, and it talks about a priestly duty. Even before it defines the priesthood or consecrates the priest, or it talks about a priestly duty. And that particular uh, duty is to, to light the Lord's lamp in the midst of the 
holy place. To keep that lamp burning. That this is to be one, is to remind people of the light of the Lord, that we are to be guided by the Lord's light. And then this section concludes in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, with another priestly duty. And that is the burning of incense, that this one who points us to the Lord's light is to be one who is to lead us in worship. And this duty of solemn worship that that symbolically in the incense is pleasing to him and reaches up to him. And in between those two things, in between the duties, is a discussion of the priestly garments in chapter 28, the priestly consecration in the first part of chapter 29, and the priestly offerings in the second part of chapter 29. We're going to focus on the priestly garments. Now, we're familiar with clothes that mark someone out as having a particular responsibility. A clothing that would mark someone out as being a symbol of who they are, or at least who they are are supposed to be. So we see a police officer. It's good for us to know who the police officer is, so he is wearing a particular uniform that says, I am a police officer. And we believe that he is here to protect and serve. Now it's possible for a police officer not to live up to what his uniform represents that he should be, but that's what the uniform represents. And so we understand the clothing is to signify something to us. The same thing with a soldier. The the same thing with a doctor. Someone who has a particular coat on that we, we, we signify a doctor. There's a level of trust. And okay, I know who you are and I know what you're supposed to do. This is true of the priesthood. It's true of the priesthood in general. And at the very end of the section, we're not going to look at it, but there are just a handful of verses about the priestly garments of the other priest. Almost all of the discussion is about the garments of the high priest. You see, it is true even in a more profound way of the high priest. This is why the garments are explained even prior to the inauguration of the priesthood. Because the garments explain what this one who wears these garments is supposed to represent. What he is supposed to do among the people. It's to mark him out as being unique in that way. It's to speak of what God has committed to use him to do and to be. First of all, look with me at verses 1-5 through of chapter 29, and we see he is to be the heavenly man. Chapter 28, verses 1-5. through Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him. So this is where the priesthood is beginning. It's beginning with Aaron. We're going to learn that the priests are always from the tribe of Levi and a particular group within the tribe of Levi. And it starts here with Aaron and Aaron and his sons. From among the people of Israel to serve me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, which we're going to find out later, don't do so well. And Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all of the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. 
God says, I am raising up people to make these garments. They are to be holy garments, that is, devoted garments for Aaron as the priest. And what are they supposed to represent? Glory and beauty. Then he goes on to say in verse 3, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, interwoven, a turban and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, to serve me as priest. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Now, now that, that the colors that are going to be a part of the garments of the priest are very significant here. They are the colors of the holy place. In the tabernacle, in the holy place, there are curtains, and those curtains are marked by these particular colors. You see, the priest was to stand between the people of God and speak to God on the people's behalf. The priesthood would be this hereditary line that began with Aaron and came from the line of the Levites. But did you notice the the three characteristics of, of what these garments are supposed to signify? Holy. They are to mark the high priest out as devoted, as different. He doesn't have the same role as everyone else. When you look at him, you are to say, there is the high priest and glory. The the, the garments are not to be ordinary. They are to be striking. Glory means weighty, light, drawing attention to because they are are beautiful in a sense here. So, So you were to say, look at that. They are to be striking. They're supposed to hit you with a sense of splendor. And then that last thing, beauty, that is marked by that splendor. You would not walk in this culture by the high priest without stopping to look, without gazing upon these garments. But here's the main thing that's going on here. The high priest is wearing many of the materials of the holy place and the most holy place. And, that is the tabernacle. And remember, the tabernacle is this this house. People lived in tents. God pinched His tent among the people. There is a courtyard area. There is an inner sanctum. And there's a most holy place. Within that most holy place where it is said that God dwells, there are certain things and certain colors. And we find those things showing up on the high priest. The the most holy place in the tabernacle is to represent the presence of God. It's to represent a a reflection of heaven on earth. And now the high priest is to be a living, walking around expression of those same things. The tabernacle was the holy, heavenly place on earth. The high priest was the heavenly man. Before the people, he represented the presence of God among them. He was to go between them and God on the basis of the terms that God had designed in the tabernacle, his dwelling place. He is a many walking tabernacle. He bears the attire that marks him out as the 
heavenly man among the people. Now note that one of the issues that Hebrews draws out for us is that this heavenly man is is representative and that his righteousness is not inherent. In other words, the garb never was adequately represented in the man who wore the outfit because it was always to point ahead. This mini walking tabernacle, just like the tabernacle was not enough and it was pointing ahead, so the high priest was pointing beyond himself. But he was there as a representation to say, God is among us and he has provided us the heavenly man, the go-between, the one from among us that will go into his presence. And that leads naturally into the next thing. He is the substitutionary man in verses 6 through 14. Now we could say the representative man, but he is going to the holy place on behalf of the people. He is a substitute for them. He is a representative of them. Look with me beginning in verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, and it is to be skillfully or wisely worked. Now, an ephod is just simply a type of an apron. It's made of the colors of the internal portion of the tabernacle. And ephods show up several times in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 6, David is found uh, dancing before the Lord, and he's only wearing an ephod is a story for another day. In 1 Samuel 2, Samuel the child is at the sanctuary in Shiloh and he is in an ephod. In 1 Samuel 23, someone is trying to get an oracle from God and they're trying to use the ephod to do so. None of those seem to be the focus here, but rather there's a particular thing on this ephod. So the thing is not this apron thing itself, but what's on it. Verse 7, it shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and of fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, the the twelve tribes of Israel, in order of their birth. Verse 11, As the jeweler engraves signet, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel, and you shall enclose them in a setting of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. This is the issue. These stones with six of the tribes here, six of the tribes here, and in, on, wearing this ephod, that would have been on the shoulders. In other wor- words, the high priest would be bearing the tribes of Israel. And that's what it points us to here in verse 12. As stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders For remembrance, you shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the setting. 
They're to be a remembrance of for the high priest at all times and a signifier that he goes into the holy place not on his own behalf, but he goes on behalf of the people. It's a reminder that there is a covenant God that we are in relation to who has redeemed us as a people. But we are to be a covenant people. And he bears on his shoulders the sons of Israel as their representative, as their substitute. He alone would take the twelve tribes of Israel into the holy place. You see, there's a pattern being taught here that's very important. And that is one man for the many. There would be one man that would represent the many. He was the heavenly man. He was the substitutionary man. And he was the wise man. Chapter 29, beginning in verse 15. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment. Now, the word judgment means deciding between two things. A breastpiece of decision making. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, you shall make it. This would be a square piece of material folded in half with an opening at the top like a little pouch that something could be put in. Verse 16, It shall be squared and doubled and a span its length and a span its breadth, about that much space. You shall set it in four rows of stones, that is four rows of three, representing, we're going to see the twelve tribes again, not only on the shoulders, but next to the heart. A row of sardis, topaz, carbuncle shall be the first row. In the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, a jacinth, and an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. And they shall all be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones when their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with a name for the twelve tribes." You shall make for a breastpiece twisted chains like cords of, of pure gold. Now, of these twelve gems, nine of them are mentioned by Ezekiel as precious stones found in the Garden of Eden. Look with me down at verses 29 and 30. So Aaron shall bear the names of the son of his, sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place see this is the issue the 12 tribes are here he bears them on his shoulders and here they are here on these diamonds and jewels and he bears them on his heart and he goes there to 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 make judgment to make decisions the high priest was god's choice to be the source of heavenly wisdom and direction for the people of God in terms of the worship of God. You see, the Lord had made a decision about His people. They would be His jewels. They were His precious ones. Not inherently so, but because He deemed them to be so. He chose them out of the world. He redeemed them from bondage. Notice as it continues. To bring them, the end of verse 29, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastplate piece of judgment, you shall put the urim and thummim, means lights and perfections, the 
meaning of those words. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Do you see this? The high priest is not uncommitted to what he is doing. He is self-consciously going to the Lord on behalf of a people who are on his shoulders and on his heart. And you ask what the, uh, what the uh, uh, Urim and Thummim are? And I don't have any idea. Neither does anybody else. Maybe a little bit of an idea. They were used to make decisions. That's about all we know. Were they stones of some sort and maybe some sort of lots that could be cast? Maybe. But the issue here is that this was a special thing that God had given so it would be clear to everyone that he could direct the people through the representative man, through the, the substitutionary man as the high priest. So it wasn't something that people are saying, yeah, we need to get our hands on that so we can work that out too. It's not what's going on here. This was a specific thing for a specific time. It, 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 it helped make decisions. So we, we, and these decisions were usually a time of crisis. That's why this breastpiece of judgment has a pouch for this object because the high priest would help tell the people what God's will was. Maybe Proverbs 16, 33 is a reference. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. I was reading one Jewish commentator, and he said, listen, it's a mystery for a reason. So if we ever figured out what it was, we would make a new religion, the Ermin and the Thumanites. And that's probably true. The focus of what's going on here is the way that God could lead and guide the people through his representative man, through the high priest, through the one that he had sent to dispense his wisdom for the people. You think, man, if I could just get my hands on that ermine and thumb today. Now you live in a far better place. Hebrews 1 says, in the past God spoke in a variety of ways in a variety of places but then it goes on to say but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son you need no other revelation than what you have in jesus christ every single word of scripture pointed to him and every single word of scripture is there to magnify him he is the one for whom all things were created by him through him and for him including you and I. And we live on this side of the revelatory activity of God in Christ, and we are not the people who are lacking. We are the most privileged people in the history of the world. I love the way New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce puts it. He says this, The story of divine revelation is the story of progression up to Christ. Then he finishes that sentence like this, But there is no progression beyond Christ. Were you supposed to offer sacrifices? Absolutely you were. After Christ came as the sacrifice, are you to offer any more sacrifices? Absolutely not. You have all of the wisdom you need in Christ. The Bible says Christ our wisdom. He is the wise man. The heavenly man. The substitutionary man. The wise man. And finally, what Exodus will not let you get past, the holy man. Look with me at chapter 28, beginning of verse 33. 
And on its hem you shall make pomegranates. This is a fruit, very common in the area, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Not the actual fruit, a, a symbolic representation of them, probably to represent fruitfulness of the ministry of the high priest. Scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. So as he walked, he would make a, a noise. And it says, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. In verse 35, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. The, the pomegranates are probably a representation, as I said earlier, of the fruitfulness of the ministry of the high priest. And the bells are something of the sense of devotion. There is a sound when he walks because he has a unique ministry among the people that only he has, or, or perhaps a sense of a proclamation that he has come to sound the witness of what God has told him to tell the people. But what of this, this warning so that he does not die? Now, there's oftentimes you may have heard in a sermon that they would tie a rope around the high priest. He would go into the, the most holy place on the Day of Atonement and the bells would let him know he was alive. And if he didn't come out, if they stopped hearing the bells, they would pull him out on a rope. Makes a really good sermon illustration. It's just not true. You see, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would actually remove all of these items before he goes into the most holy place to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And so he would just simply be wearing the white undergarment as he goes and does that. So, so what are the bells probably about? They're probably a reminder to him of what God has called him to and the limits of it. He was not the one that his life pointed to. He was in need of a sacrifice just as bad as the people he was going in on behalf of. His garments marked out a reality that God had chosen to use him by way of sacrifice for his own sins to be a representative of the people as the heavenly man, the substitutionary man and we see here also the holy man and they were to remind him of the limits of what he could do i think is probably the best but you see there's a power in this description because he is a facing both ways man oh yes he has to go to the people and he speaks for god as he instructs the people and yet when he goes before god the reality of his own Humanity and sinfulness is ever to be before him. And lest he ever forget it, he will face judgment for forgetting it. At the end of the day, it was just like other men. And when he died, a new one would be, need to be appointed. And when he died, a new one would need to be appointed. Look down at verse 36 in chapter 28. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. See that reminder? He goes in and we're going to see it's on the turban here. It's right there facing forward, 
holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things, and that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. You see, Aaron represents what he could not attain. He points beyond himself. As he comes in and offering these sin offerings, the issue is not the holiness of Aaron, but the holiness of God. The priest must perform his role no less and no more. And that will become very clear as the history unfolds. But the main point I want you to see here is that the focus of the entire nation by God's design, as people come before Him, the focus is this one man. They are to look to Him. They are to go to Him when they go to worship a single man. By God's design, it is one man that they are looked to for the many. And when we say He is the heavenly man, the substitutionary man, the wise man, and the holy man, I wonder if there's another man that you think about. Because that's the whole point. There's a man of whom it said, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. There is a man of whom it said that he tasted death for everyone, bringing many sons to glory. There is a man of whom it says, He is our wisdom. And there is a man of whom it said, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, Jesus is the ultimate heavenly man. He is the ultimate substitutionary man who comes to die an atoning death, not for his own sins, for he had none, but for others. He is the one in whom all of the wisdom of God is to be understood. And he is the one who knew no sin, though he died for sinners. Hebrews 4, 14-16 explains it like this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, therefore, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews seven twenty-two through 28 This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. For indeed, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son 
who has been made perfect forever. Think about this. Think about how much rich imagery, how much detail, how much history is devoted by God to teach us about the glory, beauty, holiness, grace, and mercy of Jesus. In other words, if you skip all of that, you're not going to see a full picture of the glory, beauty, holiness, grace, and mercy of Jesus. There's never been one moment of one day any of us has ever thought a thought about Christ that is adequate. If God spent so much time over so many years and provided so many details and so many uh, pictures and objects to teach us about Jesus, then what does that mean for us? We're going to spend all this life and all eternity magnifying the glory of Jesus. You see, but that's the rub. Jesus is not a tool to help you get what you want. Jesus is the end for which you exist. There's a large difference between trying to use Jesus and worshiping Jesus. At the end of the day, one who just tries to come to Jesus to get something that they have predetermined that they deserve or ought to have really believes in the beauty and glory and holiness of something beside him. But there's complete freedom for the one who says, Jesus is the reason I exist. Just think about this. Someone tells you, you know, where do I need to go to get right with God? Jesus. Who do I need to follow? Jesus. What do I need to learn? The Bible that tells us about Jesus. What people do I need to be among? A people who bear witness to the testimony of the beauty and glory of Jesus called the church. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. May we see him for who he is and may that transform who we are. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this portion of your perfect and precious word. And Lord, I thank you for the one who has the keys of death and Hades. I thank you for the high priest who actually walks into the holy place by his own authority and offers the sacrifice of himself. 
the one who is raised, the one who is at the right hand of the Father, the one who makes intercession for all who trust in Him. Oh Lord, help us in these remaining moments continue to make much of Jesus. Some perhaps for the first time. And others, hopefully, with a new glimpse into His glory, His beauty, His holiness, His grace, and His mercy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.